Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. Today, our guest is Rice University's Dr. Mickey Hebel. And without question, I absolutely love this conversation. Mickey is a special human being. She is a giver. She is a builder of people, especially young people. And this was such a fun, inspirational, educational conversation. For those of you not familiar with Mickey, she's a bit of a rock star in the field of social psychology. She is the Martha and Henry Malcolm Lovett Professor of Psychology at Rice University. And she's published over 200 journal articles, book chapters, and books. She's presented her research across the globe, and her research has been cited across the globe. Mickey has been the recipient of 23 major teaching and mentoring awards, including the prestigious Cherry Award. She's been awarded numerous research grants and several gender-related research awards. She's even joined the elite few at Rice University who have been retired from winning further awards. Yes, you heard that correctly. She no longer can win awards at Rice University because she's won so many awards. And in 2005, she was selected as the commencement speaker at Rice University's graduation ceremony which is the first and only time a current faculty member has given the address at Rice University. What an amazing honor. And Mickey is not only an amazing researcher, an amazing professor, an amazing scholar, she excels outside the hedges also. She's a lifelong athlete, a lifelong marathon runner. She's completed 74 marathons in her life, including one marathon in every single one of our 50 states here in America. She's also completed one marathon on every continent. Yes, including Antarctica, which you'll hear about in this podcast. Mickey and I had a great conversation. We covered the definition of self-actualization. We actually exchanged definitions and spoke a little bit about what that term means to each of us. We explored the pursuit of extremely difficult goals and talked about why challenging ourselves is so important both intellectually and physically and mickey believes in doing that your entire life we talked about impacting and influencing others which is really the reason i wanted to have mickey on because she is known for going out of her way to make a difference in the lives of young people and we spent quite a bit of time exploring this trait in her and talking about why she does it and how she does it and why she thinks it's so important we talked about finding progress in challenging spaces. Another thing Mickey's really well known for is creating environments where progress is possible, creating environments where difficult conversations can take place. And then we got into a pretty interesting conversation about the idea of partisan professors or activist scholars and whether or not this is a good thing, whether or not it's a good thing for scholars or professors that are influencing young people to be posting partisan messages online. Mickey shares her anti-veto, which is all the ways she's been unsuccessful on her way to being successful. We talk a lot on this platform about zigzag paths, about paths that aren't linear. Well, Mickey shares hers, and I think it was a pretty special moment. 
And then we ended with Mickey describing what she's most proud of in her career, which was a special moment. Mickey, on behalf of all the lives you've impacted over the years, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on and impacting my life. And I want to thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Mickey Hebel. Guys, before we get going, I just want to remind you, if you like what we're doing here, please subscribe to the podcast. Please share the podcast. Subscribe to our socials at Examined Athlete on Instagram and Twitter. We're much more active on Instagram, but either one works to keep up with what we're doing. You can check out more about the show at www.examinedathlete.com. Your support your kind words, your feedback will absolutely never go unnoticed. I promise you that. Thanks, guys. I, I spent two hours reading everything you sent me. I feel really grateful that you sent me all that stuff. That was very Was nice it helpful? I mean, I didn't even read some of that, so I don't even know the, what it said. But I'll I say the convincement letter kind of hit home with me because I'm now 39 years old. And I will say that I didn't totally choose wisely. I didn't. I pursued financial transactions for a long time. It hit home with me. I mean, that's a lot of what this is about. And we've talked about that a lot here is really not chasing something that you're passionate about. And your letter kind of reminded me of that. I'm like, well, it's, we're all a work in progress, that's right. right? That's I right. mean, we're all a work in progress. Better next year than this year. That's right. That's right. Thank you for joining me, Mickey. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for being here. You're welcome, and I'm I'm glad to finally be in front of you. Yeah, I got to admit, I didn't think it was going to happen for a while. <laughs> I was humbled for a while, but you know what? I think it's good for me to be humbled, and it's rewarding to finally make this happen. So I'm excited to have you. Well, we're going to start really big. And then we'll bring it back and do some backstory. So the reason we're going to start here is because I think we're going to touch on it the entire time we speak today. So what I want to do is exchange definitions for self-actualization. Because the first time we talked, we talked a little bit about what self-actualization meant to each of us. And I'm obviously prepared. So you can tell me whether you want to go first or I go first. But I want to know what your definition is. And then I want to compare it to mine. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what I think about it. And then we can hear from you because you've obviously been thinking about it. I come from it from a psychological perspective. So when I think of self-actualization, I think of Maslow's hierarchy, right? So the first thing we need is we need our physiological needs met. We need safety, housing, food. And then we start to move up the paradigm and get psychological needs met. And self-actualization to me means like you have all those needs met and you're looking to transcend and become the best that you can be. So you have all your needs, but now you're being what you are fully intended to be. And that means different things for different people. I tried to incorporate a psychological route. And if I'm being completely honest and outing myself, I'm going to do this probably just to impress you. Okay. But William James would say <laughs> that human beings live within their limits. And the reason I really liked what he wrote about this is because he uses the word awake. He wrote that compared to what we ought to be, we're only half awake. And for me, self-actualization is about being awake. And the reason I love the use of that term is because I think it's more than achievement. 
I think it's more than unlocking your greatness. I think it's about grasping at your core and being aware of the fact that I'm thriving, that I'm flourishing, that I'm pursuing my passion. So for me, it's about realizing your potential, but at the same time, understanding the space you're in. Does that make sense? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And so I've always thought that, that it has something to do with realizing the potential while also knowing that you're in the right space. And then I found that James quote a while back and I went back to it and I was like, I've got to mention the name William James because she'll be so impressed. Well, with me. I am I am really <laughs> impressed with that. And, and you should have high self-esteem, which William James also defined as like the sort of successes you have to failures. So, you know, what he says is you have to take a lot of chances and then you have to make them work. They have to like turn out the right way. So I think that kind of goes with the sort of self-actualization because it's figuring out what you want to do, having success at it, and then being aware that you're in this space. Did you say taking a lot of chances? You mean you have to fail? The more you don't fail, the better your self-esteem tends to be, right? But I think that all of us have failures. We're going to talk about that today, right? It's like, I will argue you can't stand on the mountains and realize they're mountains until you've also been in the valleys. Absolutely. Well, let's pull back. Like I said, we started pretty big. We're not going to explicitly dive into your research, but I do think it's important for to get a general overview of your expertise, your interest, your focus in a professional sense. So give us that. Well, I have studied issues related to diversity and discrimination for, I guess, 30 years. So I'm a psychology professor at Rice University got my degrees at Smith College. So I went to a real liberal feminist institution, followed that up, went sight unseen to Texas A&M, got my master's there, and then returned to the great Northeast to Dartmouth and got my PhD there and studied gender issues at those very, very different institutions. And then studied just more broadly the perspective of stigmatized individuals. So people who are marginalized in our society And then just have spent the last 30 years really looking at what their perspectives are, what discrimination they face, and then how do we help remediate that as allies and as organizations. That's a thumbnail sort of sketch. Yeah. Was there a foundational moment in your life where you said, I am going to focus on gender equality and diversity? Our mutual friend, Eden King, shared that she had this moment as a child where she realized all the presidents were men, and it just struck her as unfair. Was there a a moment somewhere in your life similar to that where you said, this is where I'm going to dedicate my life? There's been a couple moments. One is, you know, I think just growing up, I'm from a town of 1,300 people, Partyville, Wisconsin. And I think I was really aware when I I had this kind of awareness when I went to college that, wow, I really lived a sheltered life. So everybody is predominantly middle income, but we never felt like we didn't have anything. In fact, we had a pool, so we were kind of like had a lot. But there was one black family in town. There was one gay person in town, and they were kind of perceived negatively And then there were Latinos that were migrant workers. And so I had this sort of sense. I also had have an uncle who's Jewish. And I knew that something as a kid, I knew something was off. We come from a family where my dad is 
has 17 brothers and sisters. So it was this really big Catholic family where there are 11 boys. And I knew that he complained about not fitting in. And it was never clear to me how all these pieces work together until I got at Smith College, where I think I really felt like, oh, I understand social justice. I've really been in the majority. And now I look at these minority situations. And I think also at Smith, just being at an all women's institution, you learn about all of the women who went before you and men who marched with these women to give us basic rights, like the right to vote, like these people from 18, whatever, 80s to the 1920s, were like trying to get this right to vote and would, you know, be assaulted because they were trying to bring momentum forward. And I felt like after four years of learning about women, I felt like I want to make I want to pay this forward. And that's how you one more incident that really made me think about sexual orientation differently. You know, when you go to an all women's college and, and when you play on the softball team, you get a lot of jokes like, oh, you're gay, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, for a lot of time, I spent a lot of time saying, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. One time in my junior year, I was hugging my high school friends goodbye on our campus. And about that time, a group of guys went by and they yelled out the window, lesbians. And I had this moment where I was like, and what if I am? What if I am? And from that point on, I think that was a turning point where I was like, I am going to be an advocate, an ally always for groups of individuals who are kind of like targeted or marginalized. Was Smith College a diverse place? Was Extremely. That, it was. Extremely. I, I just saw so many colors and so many stripes and polka dots. And, and just, I mean, what I mean is just differences that I never saw in Partyville. And instead of one of each, there were many, many different types of of this and that. Yeah, I do think that's a major advantage. It's it's funny you mentioned that because I was the opposite. I grew up in a very diverse culture. I've had some high school friends, one in particular that ran logistics for President Obama, who's a black man, came on and we talked about growing up where we grew up, where it was basically 30%, 30%, 30% Mexican, black, white. And, you know, I took a Nigerian American girl to prom. She'll be here in two days for dinner. My kids love her. She's still one of my great friends. She's someone I love and I know she loves me. And we've had these conversations about how lucky we were to grow up in this environment where we partied together and we stayed over at each other's houses at night. We went to prom together. In my brother's case, he married a black woman. And it never really seemed like a big deal. And then we got out into this world, even at Rice, where I realized there's plenty of people at Rice that have never really spent any time in black culture or Hispanic culture. They had kind of spent their entire lives in private school. And I felt at Rice that that was an advantage that I could bring the conversations. I really did. And I still feel that way. Let's move on a bit and talk about the athletic aspect of your life. You've been an athlete all your life. You've been a runner all your life. In one of your speeches to the Rice community, you spoke about pursuing not only intellectual interests, but physical interests for your entire life and why you felt that was important. You believe your success in academia has a lot to do with your success running on the on the track or running out in the streets and marathons. Elaborate on this point. How do you see them as correlated? Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you, I've looked at the people on your podcast and I'm going to differentiate Lenny Waite and I talk about steaks and hamburgers. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. 
and you have a hamburger. You are listening to it and interacting with the hamburger here. So, you know, in my mind, I am a Kenyan runner. Okay. And I run beautifully and flawlessly and, and, and at the front of the pack. In my reality, I'm a back of the packer and I am a marathoner. And I think for me, it's been a really great metaphor for life, which is there are some really tough miles. There are some super easy miles. There are some miles that are easier because you do it with friends. Some of my favorite marathons are, of course, the ones where I've gone the fastest. And I'm like, yes, 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 I've qualified for Boston. Yes, I'm on the bus legitimately. And then there are some where I'm like, you know, that was a really slow time, but I got to run that and usher somebody through their first marathon. And so for me, the marathon is just, it's just been such a passion of mine. I think the other thing that's really been great is it really is about diversity. So I often say to people, hey, imagine two states you never want to live in. What would those two states be? Like somebody says, we're going to put you in X and which two states, I'm going to ask you right now, which two states do you cringe at the most? Actual states? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I don't want to denigrate any states. Um, Oklahoma, maybe? What other state do I not want to be in? I don't know. Why am I having trouble with this question? I don't have another one. You, what's yours? Give me well, one. Well, I'd say North Dakota. I'm like, oh, no. You know, I grew See, up I in think West- it's beautiful country up there. Oh, though, no. So this, is, so this is the point of it is I study stereotypes. So a lot of people will say, oh, Mississippi or, oh, North Dakota or, oh, whatever. Don't put me in Iowa. You know, and I was thinking I, flat ground, no mountains, kind of just oil filled. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. But OK. Yeah. And what I like to say is, you know, I've run 26.2 miles in every one of our states. And what's really exciting exciting is just to know how beautiful each one of the states are, whether it's a beautiful day in the cornfields of Iowa, or whether it's the usual typical suspects of really close to Sausalito in in, uh, California, you know. And what I will say is, it's always fun to listen to what states do people not want to be in, because they're often states that they haven't spent any time in. And they're full of stereotypes, right? But Even when I was in Mississippi, it was like, oh, my God, I had so much fun renting a car by myself, driving this Ford Mustang. Yes, it was banana yellow into like where Elvis Presley was born, going through like these beautiful parks and running this marathon in a beautiful, beautiful area of Mississippi. To me, it's a little bit, again, kind of a metaphor for life, which is don't judge a state until you've run 26 miles in it because there are fabulous people, there are fabulous sights to see. It's just kind of a, a nice way of looking at the world. And, and I think sometimes when people come to the US, they go, oh, yeah, I go to New York City, I go to California. And I'm like, you know, you should go to Colorado, you should go to Nebraska, you should like go to Georgia. There's some beautiful, beautiful places that we overlook a lot. It's so funny you say that because I use the term to try not to be reductive of cultures and Fumi Jamo, who you may know, sat in that seat. And one of the things we talked about is how easy it is to be reductive of Nigerian culture, how easy it is to be reductive of any place. But the reality is, is that these cultures are complex and people are complex and they should be seen that way. You've also run a marathon. You said you're a hamburger. You've run 65 marathons. Is that right? 74. 74 marathons, all 50 states, all seven continents. We don't need to linger here for long, but you've got to give us a story about running a marathon in Antarctica. Give us something. Okay. Here's my story. 
There's a really fabulous person. I'd love for you to meet her. Her name is Susie Seeley. She's in the World Book Guinness Records. She's Houston famous. And she called up her crazy friends because she needed to run all these marathons in under, I don't know, three hours and 45 minutes. She ran the Antarctica marathon. And in the middle of it, they had to close the marathon and get everybody out because the weather turned bad. So she had to go back the next year and she called all her crazy friends and her friends said, no, I can't go. So she had to really scrape the bottom of the barrel and say, I need to call my really crazy friends. So she called me and I said, I'm there. <laughs> and so do you have to like file with the government? How is it easy? You just show up and run? What do you um, you have to know you 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 sign up with an outfitter for this one. And we signed up with this guy. His name is Steve Hibbs from Minnesota, and he was planning the whole thing. And we basically had to go for 10 days. You have to make a 10-day commitment because you fly down to Puntas Arenas in Chile. And that's the farthest point south, well, which is what it means. And you sit there and wait until you get clearance for them to take a plane and fly from Puntas Arenas to King George's Island. And to be clear, when I say I've run a marathon in Antarctica, it's kind of like saying I've come to the United States and run a marathon on Martha's Vineyard. Okay, so it's like one of the islands, but it is Antarctica. And the only thing that's there is a Chilean research base and one little Greek Orthodox church. So anyway, we get down there. We have 10 days. The reason 10 days is, again, you have to wait for this clearance. And the minute we got down there, we had been really tired because we flew, you know, to Chile and then we went to Punta Serenas and we're there and we get a message and it says, meet in the lobby. And so we meet in the lobby and they say, we have clearance to go tonight, the day we arrive, and we are going to leave at 12 o'clock. And we are like, oh my God, we're going to make it because we didn't know if you we were going to make it. So and that's uh, all based on the weather. They're all they watching the weather? based on okay. the weather. Yeah. So we get on a plane at 12. At 2 a.m., it's a two-hour flight. We land on this gravel runway. We get out. We see this little building that has the Chilean base. There's probably about 50 of us. And there is a tent. And that is where there are two little pails for one and two. And that's all there is. There's this tent set up for us. And we get out. And within five minutes, we're running. And I will tell you, Susie was amazing. I was probably the most boring person there. Again, kind of hamburger. There were people there that had just finished Mount Everest. There were people that were, you know, had done 250 marathons that year. I was like, holy crap. You know, you think you're great until you find a pack where, you know, you're just the nothing. You're nothing. So anyway, I ran it, ran with Susie, finished it, and uh, we got back to Punta Serenas. And I had a baby at the time, a little baby. I had three kids. And Susie had already done Punta Serenas. And I said, let's go back. Let's go back early. I want to see my baby. Let's go back. And she said, Nikki, you cannot go back until you run a marathon in South America too. And I said, well, they're not going to run it for a week. So we talked to the race director and he let us run it the next week. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The next day. So you did two and two three and two days? days. Two, two days. Two days. Yeah. Wow. Well, and that's... actually, my time in South America was faster because <laughs> the Antarctica was right up hills. It was it was up hills and rocks. Were and you cold. running on ice? Uh, 
at times it was more like gravel and you chose the right time of year obviously yes. yeah yes it was at one point in time i did notice that my eyelashes were freezing and i remember thinking gosh it feels like arctic air and then i was like um it is <laughs> well that's a pretty good story i'm glad i asked you know, I know you're downplaying your athletic ability here, but you clearly like to pursue extremely difficult goals and push yourself. Why is that important to you? Why do you think it's important to pursue hard things? It's funny. You know, part of me says because they're there. You know, I think there are people who like to train. <laughs> That'd be my husband. I don't want to train. I want to perform. So he's like, let's go out and run. I remember when we were training for, we did an Ironman for our honeymoon. And I remember he was always like, let's go out and do a 100 mile bike ride. And I was like, let's not, let's just do the race. Like, so some people say, let's go out and run 21 miles for a marathon prep. And I'm like, let's go out and do five more and call it a marathon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? We'll get the t-shirt and the I medal. I want a medal after this thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I, I think maybe I'm just a really goal-driven person and I need that goal. Well, let's pull you back into your psychologist hat here for a second. What does the data say? What's the empirical research tell you about pursuing hard things what would angela duckworth tell us oh about i think i would t be told that i'm super achievement oriented i want the achievement i want a goal you know and i i look for that goal and then i i try to figure it out yeah i i read about this a lot and you can probably confirm or deny this but it seems to me the science says that we become gritty we become industrious by pursuing hard things. I think there's quite a bit of science behind that is that we learn to do hard things by doing other hard things. So if we don't consistently pursue challenge, if we don't consistently pursue things that are difficult for us, then we're probably going to have trouble with other things that are difficult in other domains. Well, and I will tell you, people said, what are you going to do after you finish all the marathons in all the states? And I said, sit on the couch, eat potato chips and get fat. Well, that's what I started to do. And I was like, dang, I got to have another goal. So then I started the continents. And I, I will tell you, part of me is like, okay, what now? Like I look around, what now? What What is it now? So I, I do think there is something to the grit, to the having goals and, and trying to figure out how to get there. Absolutely. Well, let's transition a bit. One of the re many reasons I wanted to have you on is because of your influence, the power of your voice. More than one guest that I've had on this podcast has cited you as a defining influence in their life and one as a hero. And there's a lot of ways to define success. But for me, that's right up near the top. So how do you feel about not only great people, more importantly, good people pointing to you when I ask them who are the defining influence in your life and they say, Dr. Mickey Hebel, how does that make you feel? I just will tell you, I have been so lucky to be surrounded with incredible people. And I feel like if I could say the one gift that maybe I have, you know, like a hamburger at running, but maybe a steak at one thing, it would be getting people to believe in themselves. I love and that. I, I think that I have worked with a lot of people who have so much potential, but they don't have anyone who 
pushes them or believes in them or gets them to think about the possibilities. And I think about in my own life, again, back at that small town, my brother and my sister didn't go to college. What I do think about is who were those people that inspired me or believed in me? And for me, it was these teachers and I looked at them and they believed in me. And so as a teacher, I sometimes think the most important thing I can do is believe in somebody, especially I have a particular type that I like. It's a humble person. It's a person who just has potential, but they don't necessarily see it. And those are my favorite people to work with. And they're appreciative. You know, they're really appreciative. So these people who mentioned me, they could have said me, 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 it was all, it was all them, but they put it on somebody else. That's like, that's the kind of people you like to work with is people who give back credit to others. So there's a, a real kind of appreciation I have for them because they are the kind of humble people who have done well and, and been worthy of one of your podcasts. Absolutely. Well, let's let's dig into that further. And I'll say this just as an aside. If you're going to choose where to be a hamburger and where to be a steak, I'd be a hamburger running marathons all day and be a steak <laughs> and bringing out the best in others. Well, I'm pulling this from one of your speeches that I read, and you cited a book called Colleges That Change Lives by Loren Pope. And it says in that book that colleges that tend to change people's lives have a faculty of scholars devoted to helping young people develop their powers. So my question is, how does one help a young person develop their powers? I love that question. So I think the first thing you have to do is look somebody in the eye and let them know that you are listening and that you are really listening to them and that you're not trying to lead them somewhere. You're really focused on what they have to say. This kind of goes back to self-actualization, really. It's about thinking, how do you define self-actualization? What do you want to do? How can you be great? What is it that I can help you do? And I think that's the way to help people is, first of all, figure out what they want to do, what they want to become, and then try to help them. Now, in my case, I'm limited somewhat in how I can help you in addition to listening and being there for you and writing a letter of recommendation. So in a lot of my cases, I say, hey, do you want to take my class or do you want to work in my lab? Or if there's anything that I can do experientially or, hey, I know this person, I can connect you to this person. You don't want to be in a research lab. You want to be a, a lawyer. Well, I'll share my contacts openly with people or anything I can do to advance. Thinking about what you can do, thinking creatively about what you can do to help a person. And I just know the first one is to really listen and connect with them and be able to articulate how you can help, where they're going, where they're trying to go, and then thinking about how you can be a conduit to helping them get there. Yeah, I, in preparation for this and that question, I was thinking about those people in my life. And for me, it was less about those big moments of sharing contacts or inviting me into a lab. It was the little moments of listening to me, of making me feel like I was worthy of your time, worthy of your sacrifice and your interest in me. Those were the things that made 
me feel like people believed in me. I can think of a high school coach named Luis Vanatucci that had a way of just making you feel like you were worthy of his time, of his sacrifice, of his extra hours, and making you feel like you were great when you weren't. And I don't think it was explicit. I don't think it was coming and saying, you're a great ball player. It was those little things of listening to you. And I will never forget. So I was a talented ball player, but I went to junior college out of high school. And then after two years, I signed a scholarship with the number one team in the nation, the defending national champions. And the day after I did that, I drove back to Austin from Houston. I went up to the school and I found Coach V just to tell him, thank you for believing in me. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Clay, it was easy. You're a great ball player and a great kid. And that was kind of the end of it. But that's how he was. It was it wasn't this big, elaborate scheme that he put together for me. It was just I always knew he believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. Let me quote Michael Petrus. Do you remember Michael Petrus? Oh, yeah. He says, she saw potential in me when I didn't see potential in myself. And you talked about this being purposeful. Are you literally seeking opportunities and being mindful of where is an opportunity to help? Is it something that's second nature? Are you literally proactively thinking about how can I help this individual? How can I be an influence in their life? Okay, so that's such a nice question, and I I like it, and I want to be thoughtful about it. So my my immediate answer... You know, one of the shows I love the most is Biography. And they used to have a Biography channel, and maybe they still do. I just don't watch that much television. But it would always take a person and tell their story. You're choosing these really pretty amazing people on your your podcast. I looked at the bios of them, and I was like, oh, these are really good. But you know, everybody has a story to tell. You just have to sort of go in there and find out what the story is for each of these people. And I've always had this sort of feeling that each one of us can be something great. It's just a matter of, are you going to, again, sort of self-actualize? Is that person going to fulfill their potential? Are they going to have help along the way? Are they going to make their personality and their situation come together and make it all work. To me, one of the things that's been really helpful in that is that at Rice, a lot of the people who have come to me have incredible skill sets to begin with. And if they had never met me or never met some of these professors that they meet, they would still probably do well. But there's some sort of need in many of them or something that is just like a, a kind of like when you hit the vault, you, you jump onto that little springboard. And for some of these individuals, I am a springboard that helps them get over the vault. I kind of felt like this. I had this really exciting time. It was one of the best times of my life. I, for my 50th birthday, I invited 50 friends to Las Vegas for a three-day weekend. And they were all women. And they were 50 women from my life, from childhood to last, you know, the year before. And they were the women I admired. And and some of them were just, most, they all have a biography that's incredible. And the last night they got up and they did a roast of me. But it wasn't really a roast. It was so nice. And many of them had this thing that you said, Clay, they said, She doesn't know how much she helped me, but I was really struggling and she helped me. And I was thinking, I never saw it as like 
I saved you. I always saw it as you're one of my students. You're somebody I care about. I want you to do well. I believe in goodness. I believe in helping you. And if there's some way I can help, why wouldn't I? And then to boot, I just like you. You know, I like people. I'm a people liker. I feel like it's not just a give. It is very much a I receive and get, you know, it's like this is this Catholic thing, right? My dad is one of 17 children and and the Catholic, you can take the girl out of the Catholic church, but you can't fully take that Catholic out of the, the girl. And it is in giving that we receive. And I feel like that I'm a giver, but in giving, I get all these friendships and all these rewards and get to see all of these success stories. The reason I took this line of questioning in this conversation is because that's that's who I want to be on my best day is someone that impacts and and influences others in a positive light. I think that's my top line goal for sure. And so I want to be mindful of my voice and mindful of my actions. But what I was thinking as you were speaking is it almost comes up every podcast with great athletes, great business people. They talk about these moments of influence and they're, they're nothing moments. They're no big deals, but it was the no big deals that changed who they were. It was the me going back and talking to Coach V and he going, I don't remember doing anything. It, it's really just how you interact with people. Who are you as a person? And it seems like that's kind of who you are, which I want to rub off on me and I hopefully can do that for others because you don't have to be some achieved laureate to influence someone or impact someone for certain. Anyways, well, let's keep moving on. We're going to take what's going to seem like a left turn here. But I believe it still has a lot to do with being our best selves. So I want to talk to you about finding progress in challenging spaces. And so you're an applied social psychologist, which I'm reading this. It means that you study the way people influence and interact with each other. And so I want to specifically focus on how we influence each other in challenging spaces and challenging conversations. Part of your job, in my eyes, is to navigate through polarizing spaces. Sometimes gender issues can be polarizing. And part of your job is to encourage environments where these conversations can take place on campus. So before we dive into how we create productive environments, I'd like to start by asking you to speak as a psychologist about human nature and human heuristics. Did we evolve to function in these environments objectively, rationally, and in these challenging, emotionally stimulating environments? Or are we fighting some some bad evolutionary design flaws when we walk into situations where we're going to get stimulated emotionally? Here's what I think. I think that since the beginning of time, there are the haves and the have-nots. Whether it's we're going to get food and we're going to get the better place to live, place to hunt, whatever it is. There's always been competition. And competition is really healthy, right? It's motivating. It creates ideas. It creates energies. It it creates achievement. But when there's competition, right, there are the people who haves and the people who have not. I do think that part of our environment and part of our ideologies can influence that more or less. So if you take capitalism, right? Like capitalism is a good thing because it creates innovation and ideas. 
But you could also say yes, but it creates the haves and the have nots. If somebody is going to make it and make a lot of money, they are probably going to make that money off of somebody else. And so I think that it is pretty much kind of been there since the beginning of time is this sort of competing. One of the psychologists I look to is Jonathan Haidt from NYU. And one of the things he speaks about is that intuition comes first in human beings. You know, simple heuristics come first and you know, simple judgments and that strategic thinking, critical thinking comes second and takes more effort. Kahneman writes quite a bit about yes. that. And one of the reasons I bring that up is because reading your lines yesterday about being forewarned is being forearmed is if you understand that our tendency is to be biased and be irrational and be overly emotional or catastrophize, and you understand that going into challenging spaces, we can be forewarned and make a change. Well, well, let's get into how you overcome unproductive programming within your classrooms or within your social circles. How do you create environments where difficult conversations take place that in a way that prioritizes progress, hopefully where all individuals feel welcome to share and take risk and and work things out in real time. So I was just talking to my friend uh, yesterday, and she was telling me about a, a, she's a work, child life specialist, and she was working with a father. And she said, the father said, I've never made a mistake in my life. He was joking, right? <laughs> he was not joking. Okay. And I think that's obviously an extreme but I think the way we are wired is to believe that we are the protagonists in our story. So if I ask you, hey, Clay, what's the last thing you've done that's nice for your wife or for, you know, your friends? You're like, oh, I remember when I did it. If I say, what's the last shitty thing you did for them? You're like, um, you know, it's harder for us to think, right? So I think we have to have this understanding of, and by the way, that's self-esteem, right? We want to believe we're good people. We want to believe that we are the protagonists, that when we do good things, it's because that's who we are as people. And when we do bad things, it's because others forced us to do that, or the referees made a bad decision or somebody else like, you know, ruined our day and, and made those errors. So I think the first thing we have to do is really understand many of these fallacies. I actually really agree with you know, what you said about Jonathan Haidt and also about Kahneman, which is, you know, we have sort of two systems. One is the fast system that responds immediately, right? And again, we can go back to saying, there's an animal, let's go get it if we are a hunter, right? Uh, there's danger, there's somebody that looks different from us, ah, they might hurt us. And so we have these heuristics that are supposed to be very helpful. And we learn them and they become automatic. And then the second is the slower system that says, oh, wait a second, we actually might be wrong about that. And so I feel like if we're going to have productive conversations, we have to be willing to say, one, we do make mistakes, a lot of them every day, probably 20 mistakes a day. Okay, I don't know how many. We also are not the protagonists of our story, unfortunately, like we're actually kind of bad people sometimes. Sometimes we're motivated by greed or, you know, like we're just motivated by self 
pure self-interest. And I think to the extent that we can understand these fallacies that we have in our belief system, we can then say, okay, let's set those aside and be the people we want to be. Okay. And we do that by understanding and having awareness of these heuristics and biases. And then if we can think about, okay, what do we really want as an outcome in situations? Is it really about us or is it about what is our definition of success in an outcome? What are we trying to do? I think if we can take ourselves out of it and our self-interest, we can have a, more, a better outcome. What I'm hearing is, is humility. It is That's humility. That's a core, a core concept is intellectual humility if you want to find progress. And we can talk about what progress is. I think that may be an interesting discussion. But without that humility that I could be wrong and I may have to change my mind or I may be biased or I may be catastrophizing or whatever fallacy you may be part of, I think that's really important. I think it's interesting you mentioned too about not being the hero. Because I'm a big fan of history, too. And there was a great podcast taking you into situations within World War II and asking you to put yourself in a situation where your Jewish neighbor came to ask you for help. And we tend to think we're going to be the hero there. But basically, the point the author was trying to make is that typically you're not the hero. It's easy to think you're going to be the hero. It's much more challenging to say, I may have turned them down because I was worried about my kids. I may have turned them down because I thought that I was going to put myself in danger. It's really difficult to go back through history or go back through your life or say real time that maybe I'm not the hero here. I love the first pillar that you hit on is humility because I think that's so true. So I just want to say I use that as an example in my class. I say to students, if we think about that right now as this modern day Rice students, here's what we're saying. We're saying that U of H people are bad, and we're going to kill them. We're going to kill all people in U of H, at U of H. So you have an option. You can keep somebody from U of H in your dorm, under your bed, in your closet. But by the way, if they find this person, you and your family are going to be killed. How many of you would do that? And of course, that always makes them go, holy crap, like I wouldn't do that. They're going to find them in that small space. And yet there were people who did that. So I, I, I love that example. And I, I try to give that example in my class just to show like how much obedience to authority and how, you know, people say, oh, I'll never do that. Or those were the olden days. That would never happen again. Well, it happens a lot of times. But I want to go back to this idea of humility, which it is. And it's also about, I think another pillar is really not being self-focused. It's it's humility, but it's having others' interests in place too, or having group interests, not just yourself. I think that the human is selfish. And to the extent that we can recognize that and say, let's pause our selfishness. It's not just humility, but let's pause our selfishness and say, what does the situation really call for? What's optimal in this situation? We also see better outcomes. Yeah, I was here. What I was hearing too, just an observation, and is because it's something I like to say is prioritize curiosity, not judgment. If those Ooh, situations should require curiosity or require curiosity. And the minute you tip into judgment, progress is out the window. Well, let me ask you this: assuming you're creating environments where respectful 
good faith dialogue is taking place. How do you advise students or friends to react when they run into ideologically offensive ideas? So, you know, you're so good at the, you know, such great questions to ask. Thank, <laughs> well, thank you. you. Yeah. You know, I went and I saw Obama come and give a talk in the Baker School of Public Policy. And James Baker was there, too. And they were having this conversation. And I thought there was something so interesting that was said. And basically, they were talking about how in the olden days, <laughs> like 10 or 15 years ago, but for, for youngsters, that, that seems like the olden days. You know, there was like NBC, ABC, CBS, and we would all get the news from the same place. And so you wouldn't argue about what the news was. You would argue about who delivered it best. Was it Dan Rather or Tom Brokaw or whatever? But we got the same news. And now we're in a world where you can watch totally different news than I can. And so there are all these different realities of what's going on. I think we have to acknowledge that, that we are getting very different realities. And I also feel like ideologically, another thing that happens is it used to be the case that you could kind of choose your ideas from sort of like a buffet. So I can feel this way about abortion and I can feel this way about capital punishment and I can feel this way about crime. And now I feel like there are these sort of customized sets of beliefs. And I think that is really scary to me. We see this, whether you're left or right. It's like, I think we need more independent thinkers who bring us back to saying, my logic doesn't have to line up. We can be inconsistent. Like, I, I feel like there's these like sort of, you've got to go down this path or this path, and they're very different. But I think we need more independent thinkers and people who can say, I'm going to choose from this buffet. This makes sense in some cases, and this makes sense in others. And I think we have to, again, be sort of open. I love your curious, like your curiosity about why people feel the way they feel, why eating from a buffet and looking at independent perspectives are actually really good. I love where you're going with that. And I will say that being curious or prioritizing understanding doesn't mean you don't call out fallacious positions. And I was going to say what you're pointing out, a psychologist would call the fallacy of binary thinking is that you're either all with me or you're totally against me and that that itself is a cognitive distortion. And we have to understand that for certain. Let's go back to that idea of progress. What is progress to you? Because one of the things I wrote an essay, what I titled Beautiful Conversation, which basically encouraged us to reframe these challenging discussions as beautiful conversations and then defined what it was. And I wrote that's where progress lies. And someone intelligent said, okay, well, what's progress? Progress to Vladimir Putin is different than progress to Barack Obama. So how do you think about progress in a societal sense? I think, and I come at this as a diversity scholar, so I think of progress as people truly having equal opportunity, regardless of your background, your connections, your legacy of really having equality. I think of it progress as just yesterday in my son's high school, I learned that 
seven boy prefects were chosen and one female prefect. And I'm like, really? This is the number one school in Houston. Come on, we can do better. I think about having people in power who represent what the pool of our demography looks like and seeing people really have advantages regardless of their SES background. And that's really hard because people who have power don't want to give it up and they make laws and make justifications for why they should keep it and why they earned it. And, you know, as a baseball player, you'll, you'll understand this, but a lot of people who have success, who come into the world, born into wealthy families, who make it into great positions, believe they hit a triple. And what we know is they were born on third base. Yeah. So I, I had that question posed to me and I was challenged. I did some thinking on it and I totally agree with you that progress has a lot to do with well-being and opportunity and equality. But for me, I added that it also has a lot to do with how we treat one another and how we work with one another. The, the line I came up with is that progress means we seek out ways to win with people that don't look like us and don't think like us. Not that we all think the same and we all agree all the time. It has a lot less to do with what we're talking about and, and how we talk about it or how we interact with one another. But I think that's an interesting discussion. This is along the same lines, and I'm really curious on your take here. I generated this yesterday, this, this talking point, after reading some of your words on the power of social norms and conformity and the innate human need to fit in with others around you, to even self-censor. And so something I've picked up as I've started this journey of sitting with brilliant professors like you, I didn't do social media before this, but now I follow all kinds of scholars, some of which I've sat with, many of which I will never sit with, but I follow them on Twitter. And these are scholars that are ostensibly interacting with and molding diverse young minds every day. And they're very active on social media and not just active, they're wildly partisan. This shocks me a bit. Some scholars are even smug or vulgar on Twitter. So I've got two questions around that. And one I'm truly ambivalent on and the other one I have pretty strong beliefs and we'll get into that. But my first question is, are outwardly partisan scholars a good thing? Are activist scholars a good thing? How do you think about impartiality as it relates to ed education and scholarship and that power of conformity on campus? So I think the answer is it depends. And of course, that's the answer we academics love to give to tough questions. So in tough fairness, I've got my answer here and my answer is, is very similar. It depends, but go, go for it. This is the one I'm ambivalent on. Should we have outwardly partisan scholars, activist scholars that then walk into our classroom? So go ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you my answer after yours. So I think when those scholars are using their partisanship to raise the voices of people who do not have voices or they're trying to speak for individuals who cannot otherwise speak, it is important. I think it's extraordinarily important. But I think when they are speaking for people who are privileged in society 
and they're taking away even more privilege, I think it's problematic. May I give you an example? Absolutely. Okay. So there's a professor on campus, and he has a lot of strong opinions on diversity and why diversity matters and how diversity is about really thinking about URMs, underrepresented minorities, who are both black and Hispanic. And he, he argues that we should not get our diversity from international diversity. Huh, okay. And he's very strong about this. Now, I believe diversity comes in all sorts of flavors, and we should be very accepting of all the types of diversity. However, I get his position, which he puts over and over and over again, because what he's doing is he's amplifying voices that aren't appearing. These people aren't appearing as much as people who are international are appearing. And so international people tend to have a louder voice. They tend to have something that we see. But what he's doing is drawing attention and speaking for the voices that don't get amplified. And so for that, I say rock on because we need the needle moves sometimes when people are extreme with their perspectives. Do you worry at all about that conformity piece? If you're outwardly hyperpartisan or even smug, I'm not saying he is, but I, many of the scholars I now follow are very smug. Do you worry about self-censorship or creating an environment in your classroom or on campus where many students are not going to feel comfortable being curious and questioning and working things out real time because my leader is telling me a, very clearly that this is the way you should believe. And if you have any differing opinions, you're on the wrong side. Do you worry about that at all? So I'm going to again use this distinction. Uh, I think it depends. So first of all, I should tell you that influence really matters. So we've did a study and I'm just going to tell you this super quickly because it's really relevant. Don't take um, your time. So we I do, a, do this all day. Okay. So we do a study and basically imagine this. Imagine you're a student on campus. Somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I want to ask you some questions. Will you take part in this study? And you say yes. And then I say, oh, here comes another student. Let's ask this other student to participate as well. And that other student is called a confederate. That's a fake person. We know they're an actor. Okay. So we know they're in the study. And I say, would you like to take part two? And that person says, yes. And then we say, we're going to ask you some questions about group X. And group X differs depending on which study we've run. We've looked at blacks. We've looked at obese individuals. We've looked at immigrants, Muslims, ex-convicts. And what we're interested in doing is seeing how much does the opinion of the first person influence the opinion of the second person? So we have our fake person either say they are really, really, they've had too much of LGBT people wanting rights and they're tired of it and they're really anti-LGBT or they're really pro-LGBT. They think they should be given rights. 
And what we see in these studies, not surprisingly, is our actual subject will follow, our participant will follow the views of the Confederate. And what we do is we write them later and we say, we lost your data. Can you respond again? Because we want to make sure it's not just demand characteristics. So we see, does that opinion hold? And it does hold. It does hold. So a person can... Wait, it does hold. So they respond the same way a second time? Yes. Wow. Yes. I I thought you were going to say the opposite, that they tone down. Okay. No. So in other words, hearing somebody express discrimination, condone it or condemn it, does influence another person. Now, I will tell you, our results show that the stronger the social norm is, the less they're likely to be convinced, the less they're likely to be swayed. So we're more likely to sway people when it's a group we're not sure how we feel about, like ex-convicts. We go, yeah, I don't know how. I mean, on one hand, they committed a crime. On the other hand, they've done their time. So we're really likely to be swayed when the social norms aren't strong. I give you that backdrop because what I want you to understand is people make a difference when they when they declare things. And especially when we have individuals who maybe don't have strong norms, we can influence them very strongly to believe what they're being told. And for that, I'm again going to say it depends, because if we're feeding people hate, then I think it's a real problem. But if we're feeding people acceptance and we're feeding people sort of, again, the idea that we have more equality, more progress, more self-actualization to individuals who currently don't have power, I think that's really great. Yeah, I think then it just gets down to the devil and the details of what's equality and what's progress that we just talked about. Well, let me give my opinion after all that time because I thought this through. And again, I think it depends. I think on one level, scholars are human beings and they should have every right to support a candidate to advocate for change to push for positions they're passionate about on the other hand and this is where i said that i feel pretty firmly about i think that how do i want to say this i think that being a scholar should come with a certain level of expectation of no smugness, no vulgarness. It should come with an expectation that I'm going to be objective, that I'm going to be nuanced and take on complexity. And I feel pretty strongly about that. And I've seen many cases where I'm going, well, this is a very simplistic, reductive, to use that term again, interpretation. This is a straw man's argument. And for a subtle scholar, To make this argument feels inappropriate because it's going to shut down robust conversation in the classroom. And to make it ad hominem over and over and over again on Twitter, I feel pretty strongly that professors, scholars should be held to a higher standard on social discourse. But they should have every right to push for their opinion. So that's where my it depends comes in. I don't know where you feel there, but. Well, I got to tell you, I just served, I'm going to react to something you said. I just served jury duty. And one of the things that said on the instructions, I went and got the instructions because I was like, you know, they, they're handing it out and I'm a rule follower sometimes. <laughs> so I put the instructions and it said, the instructions are to be objective and unbiased. 
And I, I laughed. I said, well, I might as well get up and go. When you say somebody has to be objective, find somebody who doesn't think they're objective. And I'll give you a dollar. You know, we all think we're objective. We all think that we see things fairly and we don't have biases. So that becomes a little bit difficult. Maybe I'll I'll qualify that as objective as possible. And I've got like ideas in mind I'm not going to quote where it's just like, well, this is over the top and smug and you're one of the most popular psychologists in the world. Like be as objective as possible. Try to structure your position. I feel like a scholar should structure their position in a way that won't ostracize students on either side of the aisle. I feel like a certain level of civility should be expected. A certain level of complexity is really what I think. So I I really like this conversation. I think that when it comes to smugness and when it comes to, I mean, First of all, I think of like politicians as kind of like these bad actors, right? Like, let's call them on both sides. We see really bad acting and we go, wow, what's happened to our civility? And I do believe that civility is so important. But, you know, my children were studying history and they were talking about, I think it was called the Kansas Act. I might be wrong. The Kansas Act or something where one senator took a cane and broke the leg of another senator. And of course, we have the the Hamilton duel, right, where the vice president went out and shot somebody else. And it's like, geez, those are bad times, too. (laughs) So I'm all about civility and I'm all about civility in discourse, except there are some times where when we learn about minority influence, we realize that in order to be influential, you have to be loud you have to be consistent. You have to consistently get your message out. And that seems to me a little bit like what you're talking against a tiny bit. You know, it's like maybe... There's a time for raising advocacy, and typically that's a fairly simple, generic yes. uh, tagline. Yes. that's And so, so sometimes I see the same message, the same message... If it's, again, amplifying voices that are not being responded to, there's something that I'll say, and this is going to get another example I'm going to give. The progress for women in our country is dismal compared to what it could and should be. One of the reasons is, is that we don't have paid family leave for women. Now, there's a World Economic Forum meets in Switzerland, and they rank the countries according to equity. We used to be 55 just a couple years ago. Now we're 33 because it's ranked because of a number of criteria. And one of ours that was dismal is women uh, leaders. And now because of Kamala, it's gone up and because of uh, other women. But, you know, I think if you look in the Fortune 500, we have so few women leaders. But one of the reasons is because we don't have paid family leave. So we're 33. We're behind Rwanda. I mean, we are way, way behind. We know this. People know this. Men and women leaders. And we're doing nothing about it. We're doing nothing about it. Why are we doing nothing about it? Because it means we might have to give up power. It means it might cost organizations. It means people in power aren't affected. So I think there's a situation where, 
again, it makes sense to amplify, to amplify loudly, consistently, because for instance, my colleague just did research that shows that if a woman gets pregnant before tenure, there's a 50% chance she's going to get tenure. If a man has a wife who gets pregnant during tenure, it's almost 100% that he's going to get tenure. We know these differences exist. So we got to have a loud voice because people aren't listening to a quiet voice. We've been quiet for centuries. If I am making you say that I think your voice should be quiet, then I'm not articulating this in the proper way. That's not what I would say. And let me highlight my bias. My bias is I tend to think we largely function in with wild oversimplifications in a a very complex society. We speak of some of the most complex, most pressing generational problems of our time as if they're obvious and simple. And that's my bias is that's where I'm coming into this. And so I would hope that business leaders, and I used to talk to my team about this and scholars would be encouraging nuance and in complexity. I don't care how loud you are. I don't care how repetitive you are. I think, and maybe this is where we can agree, is that there's a way to amplify that. And there's a way that is vulgar and uncivil. And like I said, I don't, maybe we need to define civil, but sometimes people hear civil and you think you're telling me to be quiet. No, I'm telling you that you don't need to use the F word on Twitter if Uh, you're a scholar, which I've seen done. And you don't need to demonize others, especially in situations where The issues are wildly complex. Well, I mean, I'll just say, Jonathan Haidt, there's a lot of people who argue that academic institutions are really, really like liberal and don't allow for the more conservative viewpoints. I I couldn't agree with you more that dialogue should not be informed. Do you agree with that? Well, when I think of liberal, I think of progressive. I think of people who are classical liberals? Yeah, I think of progress. I think of giving people everything we're talking about so relates to what we've just talked about, right? Liberal to me means we're bringing up people who haven't had voices. So in that way, yes, I think that academia is liberal and progressive. I do think that there's no place for inflammatory name calling if you look at conflict. How is conflict related to performance? Actually, task conflict is related favorably to performance. But what's not related to performance is when I get personal and conflict, you know, like about you and name call. Yeah. If you voted for Ted Cruz, you're a demon. If you voted for AOC, you're you're a demon. Those situations would be what I'm speaking to. Either one of those comments to me is a problem if the goal is progress and the goal is diverse, robust conversations. Yeah. The way I can make it. Well, let's move on. Like I said, that that's really fun for me, but I want to move on to your anti-Vita. Okay. I'm a big proponent of pointing out that paths to success, whatever that means for you, are not linear. So tell us what your anti-Vita is and please share yours with us. Okay, so the anti-Vita, just so you know, is this, uh, so I teach professional issues, and sometimes when I teach professional issues, students just feel like they are never going to make it. They're never, maybe they'll get their PhD, but how could they ever become 
as good as we professors are. And I think I sent you a crazy Vita, which has like 22 pages and gobs of publications. And the students see this and they go, oh my gosh, game over. And what I like to tell them is something that I learned from an article I read by an author named First in 1993. And it's basically this idea of an anti-Vita, which means for every Vita or for every resume we have, we could also make up the anti-resume or the anti-Vita, which is a list of all the things we didn't get. So if I were to tell you my anti-Vita, I wouldn't have to tell you any colleges because I went early decision. But I'd have to tell you that I applied to 13 graduate schools and I only got into one. I'd have to tell you that I have one publication and I submitted it to 12 journals before it got accepted. And the place where it got accepted was actually a good place. <laughs> so it's a really good thing that some of them rejected it. But it's like this idea that if you give in to yourself as a failure, you really give up on yourself and nobody else is going to believe in you. So you got to have this grit. You have to have this like belief in yourself. And it's thinking about not just this sort of short course, not the mile you're on, but the long haul, like the marathon, right? So you think about, okay, so I tell the students, well, after 25 years, yours is going to look like this too. And I also kind of joke and say, if you want a long Vita, put a lot of people on a publication because that'd be more lines. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, I love that. I heard today, actually, that we celebrate success too early in our society, that we oftentimes, yes. you know, look at the valedictorian of the high school. And if you weren't the valedictorian or you weren't magna cum laude or whatever it has, well, look at all the successful people that weren't valedictorians or that struggled through whatever it is. Maybe it's sport, maybe it's college. And I thought that was so applicable. We do celebrate things early as opposed to saying, oh, wait a second, how did you progress oh, over my gosh. decades and decades? I mean, I got to tell you a story about this. So I have a sister-in-law. Her name is Lisa. Lisa was a year younger than me in school. And we were both, I was on cross country in seventh or eighth grade and Lisa was too. And uh, it was real cold in Wisconsin. So after the end of the race, people who were finished went and sat on the bus. And Lisa finished about, I don't know, probably fourth or fifth. And I was out there till the end. I was running neck and neck with the last person. There were 23 of us. And I remember running down the straightaway and going, dear God, please don't let me be last because it finished right in front of the bus. Please don't let me be last. And if you don't let me be last, I will never tempt fate again and run again. And I wasn't. I was 22. <laughs> and my, my sister-in-law remembers this story, okay? She was a really good runner. And I was a shitty runner who went on to play college softball. So then you fast forward and you go, now, which one of us is going to run marathons? Well, I try to run with Lisa. I can't get her to run over three miles, right? So I say, you know, you just peaked too early, <laughs> right? So it's really about, and I think that's so true. There's this lore of, if you go back to a lot of reunions, it's all about, you know, people don't go to reunions if they weren't popular in high school a lot of times, or they go back if they were really successful. successful. Yeah. yeah. And it's we're like, all comparing. Yeah. yeah. It's horrible. You know, I think that we really do want to think about 
what does it mean to peak? Like, maybe I'm still going to be the best athlete of my life. And maybe that's ahead of me. Maybe I'm going to be a senior citizen, you know, Olympic lady, who knows, but I would just say, don't give up on yourself, right? Full disclosure, I definitely saw that you gave a commencement address at 36 and was comparing myself and going, oh, gosh, well, it's just highlight that, that I'm just reading that on your resume and going, well, I'm 39. What the heck am I doing with my life? And it's it's silliness. It's human, but we all do it. And there we go. Well, this is the final question of that illustrious resume. What are you most proud of in your career? Oh, I know that right away. And it's the the people I've trained and the people I've put forth into graduate programs. There's just no doubt about it. It's my husband is in construction and he talks about how he builds buildings. And I think I build people. I build people. What I do is I'm building a different future. And when I think about the women I've put into PhD programs and the underrepresented minorities I've put into programs, and by I've put in, that's actually wrong. I've helped put in. I've helped by... you help guide. I've helped guide, and in a very small way. And that way is usually, I remember this one student said to me, I want to do a research project with you. And I said, okay, how about an honors thesis? And she said, okay, I'll do an honors thesis. And she said, uh, you know, I'd really like to apply to a master's program. And I said, well, I will let you do the honors thesis, but I will only let you do the honors thesis if you agree to apply to PhD programs. Now, what I told her is, you can drop out after the PhD with your master's, but the PhD is fully paid for. Masters are not. And after you do a master's, it's only two more years to get this highest degree possible. No one really drops out. Very few drop out. So it's like what I love to do is encourage and watch these individuals take the gauntlet that I'm helping, helping just push them toward and just fly. That's That's been it. And I will also tell you that some of these people who have been on your podcast are not only former students, but they're some of my best friends. And that's one of the remarkable things is when you build people, you also build a network of friendships and people that you want to stay in touch with. I think that's a beautiful answer. I certainly ad- admire you. I'm so glad we got to do this. I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you for your time, your perspective, and for being that influence. I hope I can I can match that in my life. I think you're already doing it. And thank you so much for having having me on the show. 